Lord, we're thankful that on a cold Sunday morning, our hearts are warmed with the fellowship of your people, being able to sing and rehearse the gospel already today, and now to sit under the authority and power of your word. God, thank you for that. Thank you for the gift of, of the church and being able to do this together as a church family. And uh, Lord, we do pray that your word would, would do what your word does, and that is to convict and stir and encourage us. Lord, Hebrews 4 reminds us that your word is alive, it is active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to pierce even our own spirits. And so we pray, God, uh, that you would do that piercing work. Give us an openness, Lord, to want to be convicted, to want our desires to be stirred up for you. Uh, so be our teacher, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Last Monday was Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and it was a time to remember and to celebrate his life and his work in civil rights. Martin Luther King Jr. was an American Baptist minister. He uh, led the struggle against racial discrimination in the 1960s. And with his powerful rhetoric, he inspired, he even advocated for nonviolent protest. He appealed to his followers to utilize compassion rather than aggression. My mind has been entrenched in the character development of David uh, throughout 1 Samuel. The last couple of chapters, I've just been so enamored with, with how he's grown as a leader and just what he stood for. And this week, thinking about Martin Luther King Jr., I, I couldn't help but see uh, so many similarities between these two men. Though both were imperfect men, they both stood for justice, even nonviolent justice. We're going to especially see that from David here in 1 Samuel 24, but listen to this quote from one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s speeches in 1967. He said this, when our days become dreary with low hovering clouds of despair, and when our nights become darker than a thousand midnights, let us remember that there is a creative force in this universe working to pull down the gigantic mountains of evil a power that is able to make a way out of no way and transform dark yesterdays into bright tomorrows. Let us realize the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And it does so because it's God's universe and it's God's justice. I wonder after we get done studying 1 Samuel 24, if we might be tempted to believe that David wrote that. David was a man of justice. And as we see this really fascinating conversation between Saul and David here in this chapter, uh, the main topic, surprisingly enough, is justice. It's God as the rightful judge. And so before we get to that really pivotal conversation, there's a lot that we need to do in setting the scene, especially in these first uh, couple of verses. If the last chapter in chapter 23 highlighted the narrow escape of David from Saul, then this chapter now centers on Saul's narrow escape from David. The close to chapter 23 was highly dramatic uh, in which Saul got about as close as he's ever gonna get to capturing David, but then had to pull back because of the Philistine invasion into Israelite territory. Well, with barely any time for us to catch our breath, we immediately hit verse one of chapter 24, and we learn that Saul is informed of David's location. Verse two, he takes 3,000 of his best men to reignite the hunt for David. Remember, David only had 600 men. 
And so if you do some quick pastor math, that's about a numerical advantage of five to one that Saul has over David. And furthermore, Saul's intelligence is spot on. Uh, Saul's intel has David in the wilderness of Engedi. Engedi was located just further east of Maon, which was the last known location of David from the last chapter. And Engedi, unlike other places where David has, uh, has stayed, was actually a nice location. It was an ideal place of refuge. Its location was specifically on the western shore of the Dead Sea and is described by many as an oasis. It contained a perennial spring with beautiful caverns and caves. That's where David and his men were. Then you get to verse three. And verse three is like one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. It's unlike any other verse in the entire Bible because as the drama picks up again, Saul and his 3,000 men presumably are, are closing in on David. We're told in verse three that Saul found a cave and he went in to relieve himself. Now understand what's happening here. Saul is treating this cave like a personal bathroom, right? Even kings need to go potty from time to time. It, it's such a funny detail in this whole narrative, in this whole story. And yet it gets even better. Look at verse four, and it tells us that out of all the caves in this region, in which there were many caves in this region, Saul chose this one, the cave that David and his men were in. So imagine the scene just for a moment. You've got Saul's very powerful army, armed and dangerous, just outside of the cave. And then you have David and his men who are huddled together in the deep darkness of this cave. They're, they're hidden and they're likely on pins and needles. And standing in between them is King Saul with his pants down, alone, vulnerable, and very much exposed. Now, in the midst of this tense moment, David's men begin to whisper to David in verse four. And their message is essentially this. They're basically telling David, David, this is your moment. Like, this is your opportunity to finally kill Saul. That David, or God has, has providentially given to you this, this gift of killing Saul, so that you can fulfill God's promise to you to becoming king. So, so take it. It's something that likely you and I would have told David if we were one of David's men in this moment. David could end the saga right here, right now. It would be easy to interpret this opportunity as a divine opportunity, an open door from the Lord's hands. And what we will learn in just a moment is that, yes, this is an opportunity from the Lord's hand, just like all moments are opportunities from the Lord. But not in the way that David's men thought. See, watch what happens here. Watch David's response at the end of verse four. David covertly approaches this indisposed king and stealthily cuts off a piece of his robe. That's it. That's all that he does here. And we read that, and there's a part of us that's maybe a little bit disappointed with that, that that's all that David does. There's a part of us that's saying, come on, David, like end this thing. Get your revenge. This is justice after all. This is a man who's tried to kill you a hundred times already. This is the man that, that's driven you out into the wilderness as a fugitive, away from your home, away from your family. Kill him and, and take the throne, which God says is yours and let's be done with it. But David doesn't. 
He just cuts off a piece of his robe. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, it's in a moment like this, which I, I wish there were more details. I wish that we had a little bit more information about what David was thinking. Like as he sees Saul trying to grab the toilet paper and he's you know, stealthily coming upon him, like, like did David think like he's gonna kill him at this moment, but then changed his mind at the last second? Or, or was cutting off a piece of his robe just part of the plan from the get-go? We don't know. All that we know is that David took a great risk for only a small payoff, just a piece of the royal robe. Unless, of course, there's more going on than meets the eye. And there is. See, there's a powerful imagery that's being used with the robe, uh, something that we've seen throughout 1 Samuel. The robe has signified something more that's going on, something deeper that's happening. Give you a couple of examples. Remember in chapter 15, the really tense conversation between Saul and the prophet Samuel. Samuel told Saul, hey, your reign is done. We're giving your kingdom over to a neighbor of yours. And Saul was livid. Saul did not like what he was hearing. And so he tried to grab for Samuel and ended up grabbing his robe and it tore. Samuel in that moment used that as an illustration, a metaphor, and he told Saul that your kingdom will be torn away from you, right? The robe signified something more. Or chapter 18, when Jonathan and David were talking together and Jonathan took off his royal robe and he gave it to David. He did that not because David didn't have any clothes on. He did that as a symbolic gesture of Jonathan relinquishing his rights to be heir to the throne and he's giving it now to David. See, robe has symbolized something more than just a piece of clothing. It symbolized royal status. So this risky move by David, it wasn't random, it was calculated. David was making a statement to Saul, and the statement was twofold. One, uh, David is telling Saul, hey, I could have killed you back there, but I chose not to because I'm innocent, right? The second thing, though, that he's telling Saul in this moment is that this is, this is likely a declaration of revolt against the king. David is likely declaring to Saul, your reign will be taken from you and it's over. I believe that's the only way really to make sense of verse five. Verse five uh, caught me off guard when I read it, uh, the first time I read it, because it tells us that David's heart was struck afterward because he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. I read that, I'm like, well, you didn't even really hurt him. You didn't, you didn't touch him, you could have killed him, but you didn't. Why is your heart struck? Well, it's because of what the robe symbolized. This is an act of revolt against the king. Now this phrase here, David's heart was struck, that's a, a unique phrase. Uh, it is a vivid description of remorse. A phrase there only shows up one other time, and it's actually by David in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 10. Uh, that, in that chapter, David um, had, had launched kind of a nationwide census because he wanted to know how many men he had in order to give him more security and safety rather than trusting in the Lord. It was a sinful act, and as a result, God punished him by killing 70,000 Israelites. And it's at that point that David's heart was struck. He felt remorse. He felt guilty at that act. 
So we can apply that here in this verse. David felt remorse for this. I think this also tells us something about David's own heart, his own, his own conscience. See, good leaders are not hard-hearted dictators with no sensitivity. No, notice what David is doing. He's, he's holding on to two things at the same time. He's holding on to a, a strong conviction in the Lord while also having a tender conscience, while also being gentle, while also being humble and, and kind. That good leaders, we don't have to choose one. You can do both at the same time. And that's what David is showing us. Verses six and seven, David shows us more of his heart as he explains to his men why he did not kill Saul. He basically says, Saul is the Lord's anointed. And as long as he's king, it's not my place to kill him. As men just are, are having a hard time wrapping their minds around this. This was an opportunity for David. Why did he pass it up? And so there, there's probably some friction happening there because in verse seven, David has to talk sternly to his men. Now, verse seven's translation of the Hebrew doesn't do its justice. The, the translation there, uh, he persuaded his men is way too light. That's way too soft of a translation. It, it should be translated just in a more direct way as he tore apart his men with his words. Right, it's likely that type of, of feel kind of playing off the, the tearing of the robe act. David has to almost use threatening words just to kind of explain his actions and to keep his men from harming Saul. Now, this is an important moment for David. Now, this is an important leadership moment that his men believed that this was a divine appo appointment for him to kill Saul. But David didn't see it that way. David saw this as a temptation to avoid. Now, how did David know the difference? How was he able to discern the difference between an open door to say yes to and an opportunity to say no to? How do you discern the difference? How do you weigh those two when you have an opportunity before you to say, yes, the Lord's leading me this way, or no, the Lord wants me to say no and wait? I remember early on in our, in our church, we had a, a family who, uh, they were members of our church. They were really committed, really involved in our, in our congregation. And I remember getting a call from them, the husband. And he said, hey, Chris, we're on vacation right now. And, uh, and we've been praying and praying and praying, asking the Lord if we should move back to family in a different state. And he's telling me this on the phone. He says, you know, we've been praying and praying and we, we're asking God, God, give us a sign that you want us to move back to family. And he said, at that moment, uh, the husband and the wife looked out their window. They're crossing a bridge over a body of water and they saw a dolphin in the water there. And the husband's telling me this on the phone. He's saying, that's when we knew. That was the sign that we knew that God was speaking to us and that God was making it clear to move. And I've been thinking about that as I've been, you know, looking at David and how he's discerning God's will here and just ask the question, like, is that how we are to discern God's will? By, by looking for signs. See, discerning God's will, it takes wisdom because it is tempting to interpret a dolphin coming out of the water or events or other opportunities as these open doors from God that demands specific action. 
But I would caution against that. I would caution us in, in encouraging us to avoid that type of living because it leads into reading into everything as either a sign confirming or sign disconfirming way in trying to discern God's will. I just don't think it's very helpful. It's like as if you're driving home today and, and your car breaks down and you think, well, yep, this is God telling me I need to buy a new car. Well, maybe, I mean, okay, maybe, or he just wants you to go get it fixed, right? See, the Bible, I think, calls us in, in making decisions, trying to discern God's will, the Bible calls us to live with a humble and dependent open-handedness because we don't always know God's specific will. We don't know if God's telling us specifically go to that college, specifically take that job, specifically buy that house, specifically marry that person. We don't always know in the moment. We have some helpful principles in God's word that helps guide us, gives us wisdom, like Ephesians 5, 16, which calls us to make the most of every opportunity. Okay, that's helpful. Or James 4, 15, it encourages us as we're making decisions, as we're planning our lives. It says, if, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and we'll do this and we'll do that. Right, like from that verse, it seems as if we shouldn't expect certainty regarding which path to take or, or which specific choice to make and, and say that that was clearly and definitively God's will. Like we don't always know. Now we should always remember to test and approve what God's will is per Romans chapter 12, verse two, but we must live with humility and dependency upon God. The great uh, church father, St. Augustine, lived in the fourth and fifth century. He writes about how can you discern and know God's will? And he put it very succinctly. He said, this is how you know God's will. Love God and then do whatever you please. That's what he says. Now, let me translate before some of us go out there and make some crazy decisions. What he's saying there is love God and put him first in everything that you do and make decisions that give God maximum glory as you discern the difference between good, better, and best. He says, make decisions as best you can that's led by the spirit of God and that is confirmed by wise counsel in your life, right? That's probably the best way that I could sum up how you can discern God's specific will in your life. Now, I wrote in my notes this week, preach sermon series on God's will because it's so hard to package everything in here and it's such an important thing. So we'll get to that um, sometime at the end of this year. Uh, but let's move on here. David demonstrates trust in the Lord. That's really the big thing that's happening here. Rather than take matters into his own hand and kind of have a shortcut to power, he trusts and he waits patiently upon the Lord. David understood that the kingdom which would certainly be his one day, it was not him for, for him to take by his own power. This is something that God would give to him in his own time and in his own way. Right? God's will must be achieved by God's means according to God's timetable. And as tempting as it is, and it is tempting, shortcuts are almost always in opposition to trusting and waiting patiently on the Lord. 
Well, this scene closes with Saul rising and leaving the cave, going on his way. Now, the rest of the chapter uh, involves a fascinating conversation between Saul and David. Uh, You know, these two men really haven't talked face to face in quite a while. And from this conversation, we are going to see two different things. The first one in verses eight through 15 is that David appeals to God's justice. Notice what happens next. Verse eight, David arose and he went out of the cave calling for Saul. Now notice what he calls Saul. He says, my Lord and King. And he bows face down to the earth, showing Saul the deepest of respect. Now try to picture this again. Saul's walking back, presumably back to his army, and he hears David's voice. This individual that he has not yet found yet, he's been looking and looking, like he hears his voice and Saul must have jumped out of his skin in that moment, right? And furthermore, he, he turns and he sees David bowing down to him, calling him king. Like this must've been an out of body experience for Saul. And yet David doesn't wait for Saul to respond, but launches into this extended speech that centers on two points, right? David, number one, is going to make a case for his innocence, verses nine through 11. And then he's going to appeal for God's justice in verses 12 through 15. Now his argument for his innocence is straightforward. It's based on what just happened. He tells Saul, man, I could have killed you back in the cave, like with your pants down and everything, but I didn't. And I didn't because I'm innocent. And he even even shows him the corner of the robe that he cut off, which, man, I wish we could have seen Saul's face in that moment. Like that would have been a mind-blowing moment for Saul uh, to to see his own robe cut off. It's a convincing argument. But then he goes on in verses 12 through 15, and he appeals for God's justice. He tells Saul, I'm not going to lay a hand on you and then ask the Lord to avenge him due to the wrongs committed by Saul toward him. And then David just basically lays this whole situation at the feet of God, the one who judges justly. He says in verse 12, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. Now this is quite a speech by David. This is one of his best speeches, I think. In fact, it was actually Saul who first called David prudent in speech in chapter 16, verse 18. And now in this moment with Saul's army, just, you know, probably not too far off, it's in this moment that David's whole life is dependent on the effect of his speech before Saul. But man, David's words are so challenging here. Here's a guy who has experienced nothing but unjust suffering from Saul just mistreatment after mistreatment after mistreatment. And yet, instead of getting revenge, instead of taking matters into his own hands, he is leaving this to the Lord to deal with all of the unjust suffering that he's received from Saul. And it really begs the question, I think for us this morning, how are we to respond when unjust suffering happens to us? Right, that's a really important question, especially in what we are living in now today in this culture. Let me be a little bit more specific. How do you respond when in the workplace you are mistreated for doing what, for doing what is right? 
You're not being mistreated for, uh, for being annoying or for being unkind, but you're being mistreated for being a Christian. How do you respond? Like, how do you respond when, when your boss or when uh, the, the, the workplace is forcing you to use pronouns that you know are lies and ultimately unloving. And so you refuse to do so. And you are treated negatively because of that. How do you respond to that? How do you respond when your boss or your boss's boss or the corporation is mandating every employee to put those little rainbow flags on your desk and you say no? And there are negative repercussions because of that. How do you respond to that? How do you respond when at school, your classmates make fun of you or exclude you or call you names because you love Jesus and you follow him? This is a really important question. What, What does faithfulness look like when the surrounding culture is growing increasingly antagonistic toward Christ's followers? I don't know if there's a more important question this year than that one. And there's so much I could say on this topic, but let me, let me share two things to avoid and one thing to pursue. I wrote my notes, preached sermon series on this topic <laughs> sometime this year. But here, two, two quick things to avoid, one thing to pursue. First thing to avoid, avoid taking the easy way out. Avoid taking the easy way out. You wanna know a way to avoid suffering as a Christian? Compromise, just compromise. Don't let anybody else know that you're a Christian. Don't stand fast on the truth that's found in God's word. Just be a chameleon. Just blend in with whoever you're with. That's an easy way out, avoid that. Secondly though, another thing to avoid, avoid being surprised that this is your lot as a Christ follower. Like we are warned in far too many places in the Bible that to be a Christian is to suffer. So expect it. Don't be shocked when it happens. Don't throw your arms up in the air and say, oh my goodness, why is the world acting like the world? Why can't the world act like a Christian and be more kind to us and be more loving to us? Don't say things like that. That just shows that you're not reading your own Bible. Like we're told in too many places, like Paul who says that if you desire to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. Jesus says that the world is against me and the world will be against you. Not that the world will like you or the world will accept you or the the world will, will treat you well. No, the world will hate you because you're a follower of Jesus. Jesus promised that in this world, you will have tribulation. So don't be surprised by it. In fact, when you look at church history over the last couple thousands of years, it's actually quite bizarre when a faithful Christian is not suffering for being a follower of Jesus. It's actually very, very strange, right? So let me just remind us, we are aliens and strangers in this world. Our ultimate citizenship is in heaven and we need to live like it, okay? Avoid those two things. Here's what to pursue, ready? Here's what to pursue. Entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. Entrust yourself to the one 
who judges justly. And boy, is that tough. (laughs) That is so hard to do because it, it involves giving up control, doesn't it? When you're being mistreated, like our, our temptation is to take control of that situation and, and do something, get them back or, or do something, you know, whatever that looks like. And yet the call here is don't act like the judge. That's not your role. That's God's role. So let God be God and don't try to take matters into your own hands. This is what First Peter calls us to. This is like the best passage to sum up the correct response He says, for this is a gracious thing. (laughs) Just stop there for a moment. What? Suffering for being a Christ follower is a gracious thing? That's a a mind shift for us, right? This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps that he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Church, that is our response. That is the example laid out for us to follow. And, And this is why David responded, responded to Saul the way that he did in the cave. This is exactly why he did not kill Saul there. David had confidence that God will bring justice for him. David declared in verse 12 that there will be vengeance, but that God would bring it. For David, the case is in God's hands and God will prosecute it and, and God will find David to be justified. Therefore, David can wait patiently entrusting himself to the Lord, and we are called to do the same. David obeyed Romans 12, 19 before Paul even wrote it. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It's also a really helpful verse. In fact, John Murray, uh, who's written a a commentary on uh, Romans, he says this in light of that verse, I thought was really helpful. He said, the essence of ungodliness is that we presume to take the place of God, to take everything into our own hands. It is faith to commit ourselves to God, to cast all our care upon him and to vest all our interests in him. In reference to the matter at hand, the wrongdoing of which we are the victims, the way of faith is to recognize that God is judge and to leave the execution of vengeance and retribution to him. Wow, this this is our calling. This is our assignment, and it's not an easy one. And yet, the way that this is made possible for us to follow the example of Jesus is because of the gospel. It's only because of the gospel that we can actually live out this calling that's before us, that because Jesus faithfully endured the injustice of the cross by dying in the place of sinners, even though he was perfectly righteous. Like like that example that Jesus has set before us is the example that you and I are to take when we are mistreated unfairly for being followers of Jesus. Like God's holy and just wrath was poured out on Jesus, on the just 
for the unjust so that you and I can be declared forever justified before God, right? He's, he's laid the game plan for us. This is the playbook for how to respond to unjust suffering. Because Jesus endured the ultimate injustice, you and I could be forgiven. Peter says in the next chapter, chapter three, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Well, there's another thing that we learn in this conversation between Saul and David. This takes us to the last section in chapter 24. After David is finished speaking, Saul's response is quite emotional. Clearly, David's words resonated deeply with Saul. In verse 16, he cries, he calls David his son. But then Saul does three things in his response. Verses 17 through 19, he acknowledges something. In verse 20, he shares something that he knows. And then verse 21, he makes a request. Now, what he acknowledges in verses 17 through 19 is something that you and I already know, and it's David's innocence. In fact, uh, Saul uses this Hebrew word for goodness four different times in those three verses. And that's significant. Uh, Saul's not being forced to make this declaration, right? What's, what's producing this response is David's mercy and righteousness, that David is innocent. But then furthermore, in verse 20, Saul shares something that he knows. Again, something that we already know, and that's David will be king. <laughs> now for David, that would have been really helpful to hear from his own enemy, which I'll get to in a moment. So now Saul acknowledges that. And then finally, in verse 21, he makes the request for David not to cut off his offspring, something that David and Jonathan had already discussed from chapter 20. And David agrees to that. And then notice how the chapter ends, verse 22. So interesting. Saul just goes off to home and David and his men go up to the stronghold. <laughs> that verse and the actions that follow from Saul the next few chapters prove that this is not genuine repentance by Saul. If it were, uh, David and Saul would be walking home together and David would take the throne in the palace. Oh, Saul's actions will prove that this was not true and lasting change. And yet Saul acknowledges David's goodness, confesses the inevitability of David's kingship and asks for his family to be protected. But what does David get from all this? What does David get in this conversation? David receives further assurance that God will do what he said he will do. Right, the promise from God that David will be king, he's the next anointed king. Like David in this moment, receives a little bit more assurance from his enemy that that will happen. Of course, David has believed that promise all along. He's trusting in God, but hearing it from the mouth of Saul bolsters David's confidence that God will keep his promise. And what a gift to David. You know, as we close, what a reminder for us this morning, as we think about God's faithfulness, God's promises, the gift of assurance, to have this confidence that God will do what he says he will do and to walk with the Lord with that type of assurance, no matter the trials that are before you, 
no matter what kind of mistreatment that you'll experience this week, this month, this year, to know that God always keeps his promises. You don't know what tomorrow holds. You walk into the office tomorrow morning, you go to school, whatever uh, your circumstance is, but you know who holds tomorrow in his hands and that is enough for us. That as long as our faithful promise-keeping God is by our side, that's all we need because what he says, he will do. That the long arc of God's moral universe always bends toward his justice. Entrust yourself to him who judges justly. Let's pray together. God, we give you praise and we are in wonder as we stop and reflect upon, Lord, your plan of salvation. You set in motion before the foundations of the world that you sent your one and only son to die in the place of sinners, even though he was perfectly righteous. God, what an injustice. And yet he suffered and he did so faithfully and obediently, giving us, us an example of how to respond when, when that is our lot. Lord, I pray when that moment happens to, to, to any of us, Lord, that we would be faithful followers of you that we would not choose to compromise, that we would not choose comfort, or that we would not, um, Lord, bend our own convictions, but that we would hold fast to your word. God, we're gonna need courage and strength when that happens, or to be able to stand before you with a clean conscience. Help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.